1: Good morning, it's 830 on Thursday May 6th. I'm Karen Brown and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Pink Radio. On today's show, the Jackson Metro area begins its recovery following Tuesday's severe weather. And Mardi Gras Indians hold a second line funeral in honor of a local icon. Then we examine the factors of learning loss and how a pandemic- altered school year could add more challenges. Plus, in our book club, the people and places changed by America's mighty waterways in holding back the river. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. At least 14 tornadoes have ripped through parts of Mississippi this week, damaging hundreds of homes, uprooting trees, and leaving thousands without power. Residents in the capital city are beginning the recovery process after the most recent wave of storms. The home of North Jackson resident Fred Clark Sr. was essentially sliced in half by a tree during Tuesday's tornado. He shares his experience.
2: I'm faring right now. I'm so all over. As I was in the backyard, I noticed the trees and stuff started leaning sideways and wind picked up so I was going to rush in the house and and alert my family and as I locked the back door to come in the tree had fallen and knocked me down to the floor and as I was going in I was about four feet from the tree before the the ceiling collapsed on me and stopped me and that's how I got bruised up Uh, I was dazed for a little while but it took me about 30 minutes to an hour to get out of the back of my house because it was blocked off by the tree. So I I tried even letting the windows up, but the bars, I got bars on all my windows, so I went back to the door I had just locked and was able to push some things out of the way and get out there. But then it took me another 30 minutes to get out of my yard. Back into the front of the house, I had to tear a hole in the fence. had to knock out some planks. And to get through there, and, and then from that walk, I realized realizing I was hurt. So I made it around to the front of the house, and my wife had just escaped the tree. She had a visitor come by and bring her birthday present, and therefore she left her computer room and to take care of that. And as she left there, the tree fell in the area where she had just left. So I see the miracles, and we thank God for still being here. I'm bruised up, and I'm glad to be here bruised.
1: (laughs) Meteorologist Bill Parker with the National Weather Service in Jackson says damage like that of Fred Clark's home is indicative of the overall impact of the storm. He tells our Kobe Vance this level of tornadic activity is par for the course during this time of year and encourages residents to remain weather aware through this and the upcoming hurricane season. The main damage
3: that we're seeing is a lot of trees down, power lines down, um, when trees come down, usually they'll come down across a power line. Um, there's there's some damage to structures where um, where trees are falling onto homes and things of sorts. So that's that's the main damage that we're seeing right now.
4: Is this uh, tornadic activity uh, typical for this time of year? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. April May is is typical for us
3: in in the south. April is usually our biggest month, but um, I'll just say the spring season is when we see a lot of tornadic activity. Um, as thunderstorms and cold fronts begin to move through the area. And so um, this, is, this is nothing that is rare. This is typical um, Mississippi. In um, the Weather Service, they like to call our office Action Jackson because in the spring you get a lot of big storms. This, this is typical for the south. This is when we see a um, big part of our severe weather, especially tornadic severe weather.
5: And I know this is
4: also coming up on hurricane season right now. What would be your advice to residents in terms of, you know, should they be preparing their homes for more storm uh, damage potentially in the coming weeks?
2: Well,
3: in the south, when you live in the south, you have to always be prepared. Um, we, we move from um, severe weather spring season to a um, hurricane season in the summer. Um, we, we're, in the fall, we're also dealing with tornadoes again. Um, and so you always have to be prepared um, based on our geographic location of where we live. Um, we deal with a lot of hazardous weather. And so citizens should always have a plan in place um, for dealing with that type of weather, um, especially when it comes down to severe storms and, and, and tornadoes. Um, hurricanes can also have a big event, big impact on us. And then we also deal with flooding. Um, remember last year also we dealt with with flooding um, of the Pearl River. And so uh, there's a lot of different weather hazards that we deal with. It just comes down to citizens having a plan to first receive information. I would say get a know-weather radio. Um, weather radio is the voice of the National Weather Service. Um, if we issue a severe thunderstorm warning or a tornado warning, that will alert you. Um, always pay attention to um, your local emergency managers and the, the, the messages that they may give you. Pay attention to your local um, broadcast meteorologist because they give information as well. And so it just comes down to um, having a plan. Um, if you live in a home, knowing where your safe place is in your home. With tornadoes, you want to put as many walls between you and the outside element. You want to be in a center room that has um, walls that multiple walls that, that keep you from the external part of the home. It just comes down to having a plane.
4: Uh, Bill Parker is a meteorologist in charge at the National Weather Service in Jackson. Bill, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, sir.
1: Emergency officials estimate around 300 homes were damaged statewide during this week's storms. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, New Orleans was a hot spot for cases and deaths. Many of the events that people across the region regularly attend were put on hold. Bourbon Street and the French Quarter fell quiet. Jazz fest and many parades were canceled. Now, New Orleans is allowing gatherings of up to 500 people. And a few weeks ago, Mardi Gras Indians held a second-line funeral, a parade to honor a local icon, Killian Boyd, otherwise known as Big Chief Dump. Dressed in masks and elaborate suits, but participants said it signaled a return to some sense of normalcy and joy. Belden Batiste, a local politician, was one of hundreds there to remember Big Chief
5: Dump. Dump meant a lot to me, because you know what it was to be a Big Chief. I'm Belden Looney Man Batiste, a mighty Grasianian, and you know, we're going to carry his legacy on. Dancing and the music comes from
2: Africa.
5: When you dancing to the music, you really expressing expressing yourself. But what I look at the music as being a healer, because when you get music, everything goes great. During this pandemic, this is like one one of the first big. Culture event, So it's like bringing a family together. Elijah, Elijah I think he's happy and excited because there's one thing when they, you do a funeral, but when you do a funeral the way I live, that's a great funeral. We usually can parade all around. But my uncle Lionel, we paraded three weeks but you gotta do a certain thing with the pandemic rules. And so they're just gonna go around, then they're gonna stop. And after they're gonna go to Congo Square without the, just the family and people and for the libation with African drummers. It's great for the community to come together long as they're practicing safe masks, hand sanitizer. Some of them told me they took the vaccine and they're doing great. Right in Congo Square, our ancestors met. And it was the Indians that used to hide us when they used to come for the slaves and everything. So to be a mighty Gras Indian is everything to me. First they had you know, the sorrow in the funeral But when they hit the streets It was like a sense of joy You were crying joy Because they were gone out the world And it was being healed You know what I'm saying? That's, that's what we do in New Orleans And nowhere around the world you can get it Nowhere
1: That was Belgian Batiste At the Second Line Parade in New Orleans last month That story was produced by Shalina Chakmadi of the Gulf States Newsroom. The Gulf States Newsroom is in a partnership between WWNO in New Orleans, WBHM in Birmingham, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Coming up, we examine the factors of learning loss and how a pandemic-altered school year could add more challenges. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: Allison Walker, the Lady Auto Mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
1: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Learning loss represents a clockwork pattern of concern as Mississippi students take an extended break from academics during the summer months. This year, due to the coronavirus pandemic, students are also adapting to virtual learning and other changes to educational instruction. In Part 2 of our examination of learning loss, MPB's Desiree Frazier speaks with Delta State University professor Tamika Simmons on the persistent challenges and factors facing students, teachers, and families. For our
0: students, it's really, really important for, uh, for our parents and our educators to to double down, which many of them have been doing and making sure they have that additional scaffolding and learning in this new virtual context, which many of our students are in. So it's really, really critical for our kids right now that there's this extra layer of intentionality with parents and families and teachers wrapping around our students to minimize some of that loss.
6: When you talk about scaffolding, what do you mean?
0: So, for scaffolding, I'm meaning uh, oftentimes, especially with the learning in, uh the virtual learning environment that many of our students are in, they are independently in front of a computer. Meaning, they are in that in front of that computer by themselves. Uh, and, but for many students, they, there may be an adult, uh, a family member, a parent nearby that can help answer questions if needed or help them look up pages in a book or help them, you know, probe them with questions regarding what they might be reading or learning. Um, and so that's the scaffolding I'm talking about, having another person in the room with that student at the time of learning when students are what we call on task to answer any questions and to assist them in that learning when they don't have the physical teacher near them who would normally do that in the traditional classroom setting.
6: So when you talk about the slide, are we talking about learning, um, losing a month's worth of uh, learning, two months, three months? Can you quantify it?
0: Oh, that that's exactly it. What we typically see, and that's just with the summer slide, we often see about a month or two of learning loss of academic learning loss over the summer, uh, and so and that's just with students being out of school or out of the the learning environment uh, over the two or three months of the summer. So when we quantify that and thinking about how the students have been removed from that learning environment, For an extended period of time, for many of our students, you know, several months, uh, almost a a school year, if you add up what they lost last year, and this year being out of the school building, then, of course, that number can jump tremendously. We know that our school districts are doing everything that they can virtually. Uh, Some of them have hybrid uh, learning uh, arrangements where students come in uh, and they attend school physically some days, and then they're online some other days, but again, When we talk about that loss, then we see uh, a month or two, sometimes three months worth of learning loss when students are out of that normal routine of school. And when that resource faucet, which some researchers call it, when that resource faucet of continuous education in that school learning environment is turned off or is slowed then there has to be the additional measures that, again, parents and teachers have to take to make sure that our students stay on task and get real on task learning for as much time as possible.
6: When we talk about the loss of learning, is it not worse for children of color and poor children?
0: Oh absolutely. So when we look at thank you for for pointing that out as well. When we look at traditionally marginalized students, that are our, those are our low income students and black and latina students, we often see that the loss is greater for them. So over the regular school year, oftentimes their learning gains are lesser than their white counterparts. And then over the summer, the learning loss is greater. So they're they're learning less than their white counterparts, uh, and then they're losing more over the summer. And so when we think about a lot of our kids, especially those that are in our public school systems, we know that in the state of Mississippi, like in other states, um, a lot of our public school students are students of color then we really have to make sure that our public schools, our teachers and principal superintendents are supported in their efforts to really ramp up measures to support those particular students, especially in reading and in mathematics.
6: Is it possible to restore what they've lost? Or do you just say, you know, we're just going to move on and try and catch them up incrementally?
0: Yeah, well, but as educators, we never say that, We can, we'll never restore loss. What we, what we try to focus on again is measured, consistent gains. And so although you may not learn everything you lost in a month, certainly as you stated, there needs to be consistent in targeted steps for incremental learning to 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 regain what was lost over the summer, and again, summer enrichment type programs are some of the best things that we have right now. So, to help I mean, with should
6: that. students be going to school year-round this year?
0: <laughs> now, that's a that's a good question and a really good argument uh and one that's a really active argument in educational circles whether or not our kids need to stay in school year round and there are pros and cons to both scenarios whether the kids are out for the summer or whether they are in all year round the the focus no matter what the um what the the scenario is whether they're year round or not should be again that consistent learning and time on task consistently for students in learning, especially in reading and mathematics. So whether they're doing that all year round or whether they're doing that through the school year and in the summer, it has to continue. Disruption is going to create, again, a loss of learning.
6: Dr. Tamika Simmons with Delta State University, thank you so much for your time, for your tips and insight. We appreciate it very much.
1: Thank you. Coming up in our book club, The People and Places Changed by America's Mighty Waterways in Holding Back the River. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app.
6: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.
1: This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi, the Missouri, the Ohio, three rivers that have sustained Americans for generations, providing drinking water nourishing crops and transporting goods. Also happening for generations, diverting water or confining it. Tyler J. Kelly is the author of Holding Back the River, the Struggle Against Nature on America's Waterways. He tells the stories of those most impacted by the river's flow and how the present has changed what rivers used to be.
4: We've narrowed those rivers by building levees along each bank or maybe set back a little from the bank, and then we've essentially taken all of this land. In the Ohio and the upper Mississippi, where we're talking about more lock and dams, we've dammed the rivers and turned them into a series, essentially a series of lakes. And so you, you would have had as a natural dynamic river that had shallow spots, sandbars, deep holes, etc. exactly what's described you know, Mark Twain's life on the Mississippi, which I cite a lot in my book. But what we've done with dams is basically created a series of still lakes, like steps, stepping up these rivers, up the Mississippi, up the Ohio. It's extremely unnatural what we experience now on the river.
1: In Mississippi, last year, for a prolonged period of time, the Bonnie Carey Spillway in Louisiana was opened by Louisiana to prevent flooding in parishes. What this did in Mississippi was it released a whole lot of fresh water into Gulf waters, and that impacted oysters. Then that turned around and impacted restaurants and tourism and all of that. Do Mm -hmm. you see those kind of conflicts between states?
4: Yeah, absolutely. New Orleans metropolitan area is really what benefits from Bonnie Carey. If someone benefits like New Orleans metropolitan area, almost always someone else pays the cost. And interestingly, exactly what you're describing, the cost is often, in a way, it's like distant from from the beneficiary. So, you know, one state would pay a cost and one state would benefit. For instance, you build a dam way up high on the Missouri River. You flood out an American Indian reservation taking tens of thousands of acres of arable land from these people way up in the Dakotas. And you're doing that to benefit navigation a thousand miles downstream in Omaha. It's this strange adjudication of who benefits and who suffers. And I think the Army Corps of Engineers is in the unenviable position of making those decisions.
1: Tell us about some of the people, maybe one or two of the people you talked with who are impacted.
4: Well, I think a perfect example of the case of Pinhook, which is a small African-American village in southeast Missouri, and the people who settled there in the 1940s are coming up from Tennessee. And, and the way they tell it is they never really had an authentic choice about where to live in, in terms of southeast Missouri. Just this one area was really available to them. Again, this is Jim Crow, Missouri. And it was in this area called the Birds Point New Madrid Floodway, which is and has been since the 20s, a sacrificial piece of land, 130,000 acres that the, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers can flood whenever uh, the river rises to a certain point. So it's part of the same system that Bonnie Carey is, the system of spillways designed to sort of let water out of the river right when it's really high. The thing about this village of Pinnock, they had been there since the 40s, and everyone using this land in the, in the spillway had used it for generations. Nobody thought it was ever going to get flooded again. But then in 2011, rain, it snowed, it rained some more, the river rose and rose and rose, and then all of a sudden... You know, I had the story from Deborah Robinson Tarver, who is sort of the unofficial mayor of Pinhook, and her sister, Twan Robinson. And they said they found out about the activation of this floodway on Facebook just a day or two before the National Guard set up checkpoints and and started forbidding anyone from going in there. So they rushed to pack up their belongings, lifetime sold possessions. They scrambled to get U-Hauls, semi-trucks. And it was a really, I think, stressful and upsetting experience for them. And it was less that they didn't feel that the floodway should have been utilized. I think they understood this sort of idea that this is a sacrificial piece of land. But they felt really poorly treated by the white power structure of the state, FEMA, Corps of Engineers, county. And they, they really didn't feel like they were communicated with, like they were respected, like they were informed adequately about the evacuation. And then May 2nd, 2011, the floodway was activated 400,000 cubic feet per second of water blasted down in there, completely destroyed all but one of the homes in Pinhook. And it took this community seven years to kind of negotiate with FEMA and other federal agencies for some kind of compensation to rebuild their homes. And they really never got what they had. There's actually some really interesting research, and I won't go far into it, by a sociologist at the University of Pittsburgh, Junia Howell, about how the more disaster aid a region receives actually income inequality across race is exacerbated so the black population actually loses wealth but the more disaster aid an area receives and the white population gains wealth and i thought that was really fascinating
1: because of the bureaucracy involved
4: i would have to defer to the sociologist to explain how that works but yeah i think one thing she pointed out is that african american population often would be renting whereas a white population would be more so owning you know that's a form of wealth ownership. And so the whole sort of disaster relief system is designed to restore private property that is owned. And it's much less robust when it comes to like restoring rental properties. I think that's one thing that she points out. And she asked, what if we had a disaster relief system that was designed to rebuild communities rather than restore individual parcels of private property?
1: Tyler J. Kelly is the author of Holding Back the River, the Struggle Against Nature on America's Waterways. Thank you very much for
4: being with us. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.
1: This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning.